Now, normally what we've been doing lately is uh, have a proverb of the day uh, before we actually go into our New Testament message. But I saw something that really caught my eye. It was um, from the morning devotionals that, that we do, uh, my family and I, called The Daily Bread. And I found one for April 1st that it just really struck me. So I'm going to read this instead of the proverb of the day. There's just a few verses here, Matthew 5:13 through 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now the story that goes with it, it's called In the Driver's Seat. It says, I love the story of the stressed out woman who was tailgating a man as they drove on a busy boulevard. When he slowed to, to a stop at a yellow light, the woman hit the horn, was started cursing and screaming in frustration, and was gesturing angrily. As she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up into the face of a police officer who ordered her to exit the car with her hands up. He took her to the police station and placed her in a holding cell. An hour later, the officer returned and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, this has been a big mistake. But when I pulled up behind you, I noticed your what would Jesus do license plate holder and your follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker. I assume the car was stolen. <laughs> Behavior issue there. And they go on to say that Satan doesn't care so much if you're a Christian as long as you don't act like one. If he can get you to live by his signals, he can damage and disarm you every time and dishonor the name of Christ in the process. Instead, Jesus calls believers to be salt and let your good light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. With Jesus in the driver's seat of our lives, we can show off the love and glory of God. Okay, so who was it this morning that was tailgating me on the way to church? The last time we covered uh, the beginning of the Apostle Paul's witness before King Agrippa, and today we're going to see the conclusion of that. A little bit of the background. Uh, I think Paul was excited to go before King Agrippa because this was a man who was a, a ruler. He had authority, and he had good knowledge of the Old Testament and Messianic prophecy. So he probably figured, if I could just win this guy to Christ, it would have such an effect on the Jewish community and the community all around them. Verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. Now, when we were in Luke, uh, Luke 3, 8, we also see in Matthew 3, 2 and also verse 8, we see that John the Baptist said, repent and bear fruits worthy of repentance. Let me just break this down, because now Paul says it. See, repentance doesn't go away after John the Baptist. Three things. He says, repent, two, turn to God, and three, do works befitting repentance. The first thing, repent. What does repent mean, and what are we repenting of? The word repent actually means to have change, to change of heart or to change of mind. It's a heart issue. The second point is, in other words, you, you, you're on your 
journey called life and you're confronted with either God's word or another Christian or somebody giving you the word of God and you realize that the life you've been living is is not a good life. It's not pleasing to God. So you want to change your heart, repent of your sin and confess it before God. Now, the second point is now what? So I've changed my heart and I want to do it God's way. Now what? There's a directional issue. Turn to God. You certainly don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire to repent of your sins and then get involved with a cult or something that's even more bizarre than what you started with. Turn to God. Turn to God's word because God's word can always be trusted. The third part. This is the evidentiary, evidentiary part of the stages. The third stage is do works befitting repentance. This is where there's evidence in your life that you have repentance and that you have turned to God. So do these works. This is the spiritual fruit that you exude. These are the things that people see in how your life has changed over the last year, three years, five years, ten years, because you're doing works that befit repentance. It's the evidentiary stage. Let me give you an example of a shoplifter, somebody who just enjoys going to stores and, you know, maybe it's a financial issue, but they always come out of the store with something tucked in somewhere and they didn't pay for it, okay? Now, if you are a shoplifter and you've repented of your sin, you say to God, you know what, what I'm doing is wrong, it's stealing, it violates your laws, uh, it drives up the price for other consumers, I'm not going to do it anymore. You have a heart change. Turn to God. So now you, you start your walk with the Lord and you grow in the Lord and you become a different person. You leave the old man behind. And the third part, which is uh, a very interesting part, is do works befitting repentance. So you can go to a store with your friends or your family and come out and everything that you have in your bag or on your person is paid for. And better yet, some people even feel bad about what they've done last week and they bring the merchandise back and say, I didn't pay for this. So these are works that are befitting repentance, and that's important. You see, it's not about magic words. It's a heart issue. There's a lot of really good prison conversions. But you know what? It's so common for prisoners to go before the, the parole board and go, I found Jesus. Now, can you let me out early? You know, we, we need to see fruit in your life. It's not just a, a, a lip service. Matthew 21, Jesus talks about an example of a father with two sons. And to the one son, he says, son, go out into the field and do what I need you to do. And the son says, I'll do it, father. And as soon as he's out of the presence of his father, he's like, not doing that. He says to the second son, son, go out into the field and do what I need you to do. And the son says to the father, no, I'm not doing that. And then he, as he leaves the father's presence, he, he has a heart change and he does it. He actually does what the father asked him to do, even though at first he said, I'm not going to do it. And Jesus said, which one of those two sons did the will of the father? And we know it's the second one because of that heart change, right? And he did fruits, uh, works befitting repentance. Sometimes, though, it's hard to explain repentance and sin to a society that doesn't take responsibility for sin. And I don't think I've ever really delved into the sin issue. But what is sin? Well, we all sin. We're all plagued with the same disease. Sin is something where we, the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has a perfect standard. God is perfect. When we sin, we all do it. We miss his standard. We miss the mark. Okay? And therefore, God cannot be reconciled to us unless the sin issue is dealt with. And that's why he sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. But in our society, we have a history of blaming others for our problems. It was my parents' fault the way that I am. It's because, because I'm Italian or it's because uh, where I grew up, <laughs> I can say that. 
or it's because uh, a cultural issue, or it's because, you know, I grew up in poverty. And then we go on to the whole disorder disease uh, nonsense. We all have an excuse for why we sin. If I'm an addict, it's not my fault. It must be a genetic thing. I'm, I'm predisposed to this, this disease. So what do we do? We coddle the addict. That's, that, you, you're hurting that person by doing that. Okay? It's not a disorder. It's not a disease. It's sin. It's sin. And that's what we have to face, sin. We do it, and we need, we need, a, um, we need Jesus Christ because we do sin. There was a, uh, an interesting book that was written in 1973 by a psychiatrist who wasn't a Christian. His name was Carl Menninger. And a very interesting title. It said, Whatever Became of Sin. In 1973, uh, Dr. Menninger was appalled at what was going on in society. And he said, maybe we should revisit sin because we keep explaining it away and our society is just getting worse and worse. Very interesting book. Uh, more recently, there was an article written by Norm Keltner uh, and the title is Revisiting Menninger's Whatever Became of Sin. It was so popular that there are people today who are saying our society is even worse than 1973. Let's talk about the sin issue. Let's explore it and stop making excuses for ourselves and our kids. Stop it. You know, there's, um, there's a phrase, and when you work out, you want to build your physique, muscular physique. It's called no pain, no gain. If you're not really you know, taxing the muscles, they're not going to grow. So the more work you put into it, the more your result is. There's actually something that I came up in the spiritual realm, and it's no shame, no gain. See, shame is lost in our society. Let me just give you an example. Spring break every year. A bunch of teens, you know, they, they blow off steam. It's a rite of passage. They go to Cancun or they go to Florida. What happens down there? Those poor cops, they're inundated with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> drunkenness and nakedness and drug use and people coming home in body bags and people coming home addicted, people coming home pregnant, people coming home with diseases. It's just blown off steam. It's a rite of passage. It's what we allow our kids to do. But you know what? If you're not teaching your kids shame, there's going to be bad things that are happening. They're going to eventually find up that they took their clothes off and their, their videos are on YouTube or MySpace somewhere. And now these, all these lawsuits trying to stop these people for taking these images. It's crazy. It's a crazy world. But the thing is, we're not teaching our children what it means to be ashamed. And that's, even that word sounds awful, doesn't it? Ashamed. You should be ashamed of yourself. You know what? I'm ashamed when I sin. And I say to the Lord, oh my God, Lord, I know you forgive me, but I wish I never did that. Shame. It needs to come back to our society. What's more tragic is repentance is also becoming extinct in the church. The, the professor that I'm studying from, his name is Bill Mounts. He's a great Greek professor. He actually goes into church discipline from the Greek, from the original Bible. And he said that no church today that I know of really follows true church discipline because it's offensive to Western society. What? You can't tell me what to do. Are you saying I'm in sin? We're so offended. We have all these walls up, right? We're New Jerseyans. You can't tell me what to do. Who do you think you're talking to? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it's true. The problem with our society is no one feels the need to repent of sin unless they think they're sinning. And as a society and even as a church, we don't understand what sin means and we don't understand repentance. Second Chronicles 7.14, God says this, If my people who are called by my name, 
You're speaking to the Jewish people, but that still applies today. Christian, you call yourself a Christian? Do I call myself a Christian? That applies to me. Okay, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, ooh, that's a hard step, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wickedness. He's talking about his own people. Yes, we are wicked. The heart is desperately wicked. I'm wicked too. We're all in the same boat here. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will hear their land. You see, it's a conditional statement. If you were good in English grammar, if this happens, the then can only happen if the if is satisfied. God's not going to forgive us of our sin. He's not going to heal us of our land. And he's not going to hear from heaven. He's going to ignore us if we're steeped in sin and we're called by his name. This is important for us to get. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, verse 21. <laughs> verse 21. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For these reasons, the Jews tried to kill me. Really, he's talking about there's a group from Asia, the Asiatic Jews. They came over uh, to celebrate in Jerusalem in the temple festivities. And Paul was doing fine with the Nazarite vow and minding his own business. And this group came over and they stirred up the other people and made false accusations. And then there was problems. But why did they try to kill him? For what reason? Well, a few, few things. Number one, he had the audacity to say that the Gentiles were on the same plane as the Jews as far as the receiving of salvation. Let's face it, there was a bigotry going on. And ever since the, the, the dawning of man, there's been bigotry. And it's sinful. Okay, And Paul was dealing with it with his own people. Paul was a, a revolutionary, in a sense, a civil rights leader. He was saying, listen, we can't treat these people as second-class citizens. They have the same ability for salvation as we do. That was the first thing that caused problems to him. The second thing is he preached repentance. It didn't end with John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, if you read the writings of Jesus, Jesus spoke about repentance. Three, Jesus is the only way, exclusivity, and Jesus rose from the dead, the resurrection. So this is why they had a problem with him. But make no mistake, these same issues, the world is still resistant to today. Confronting sin for what it is, and Jesus is the only way, is precipitating, if you follow overseas news, anti-conversion laws all around the world. Not just in our country that they're trying to push this stuff. Well, we don't want the Christians going around trying to convert people. As a matter of fact, in some countries, you get the death penalty for it. A lot of countries, uh, that's, that's the, the, the case there. We still have those freedoms to talk to people about our Savior and our Messiah. But it's coming. Jesus in John 15 said, basically, if they receive me, Jesus said, they'll receive you. If the world hates you, Jesus said, take heart, understand, they hated me first. Jesus said the, the, uh, the student is not above his teacher, his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day, Paul says, I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, there's three facets to this message that I want to focus on. The first one, it was a consistent message. Paul said, to this day, many years had gone by, many problems he dealt with. To this day, I stand witnessing to both small and great, notwithstanding all his problems. There's a lot of people that get excited and enamored with the whole God thing. It is an emotional response 
They say, yes, I want to become a believer, and then they fall away. But Paul was steadfast. He was immovable. And I've also seen situations where whether it be a famous Christian leader, like maybe Jimmy Swaggart, what happened with him, or um, uh, Jim Baker, or even some local pastors or leaders, and they fall into a grievous sin. And some of the fellowship, they stop reading their Bibles, they stop praying, uh, they stop fellowshipping, and they fall away. Well, I don't mean to be crass, but their focus is on the wrong thing. If your focus is on the foundation, if your focus is on the rock, it doesn't matter who comes or goes. And like I said uh, last week, if, if I'm gone and somebody else takes my place, don't go anywhere. Continue to read the Bible. Continue to pray. It's not about me. It's not about the leaders. It's about Jesus Christ. If we're doing our jobs properly, we're training you to follow him. That's our job. So it was a consistent message, and Paul had consistent behavior. The second point, it was a scriptural message. Paul said, I said no other thing than what Moses and the prophets spoke of. The Apostle Paul didn't come in and say, hey, all that stuff you heard about before, throw it out. I got some new doctrine, follow me, I'm the man now. You know, I'm, 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 the, I'm the head apostle. He didn't do that. He just had the Old Testament scrolls. He had the information that was available to him that God had given. And that's what he taught the people out of. And we've gone through this. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Daniel 12. And many other of these scriptures spoke before Jesus actually came to the earth. It spoke of the Messiah and his substitutional sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection. And specifically, Isaiah 49, 6 said that God's light would be given to the Gentiles. So why the resistance? Why the resistance? The third point, it was consistent, it was scriptural. The third point, it was a polarizing message, and it is today. If you go out on a street corner, and it's a busy street corner, and you get a little you know, soapbox, and you stand up on it, and you open your Bible, and you start reading scripture to the crowd, especially the exclusivity that Jesus spoke about. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I don't know what part of churches today that they missed in that. It's not open to interpretation. Only. It's exclusivity. You start preaching that on, on a street corner, there are going to be some that are going to be cut to the heart. And they're going to stop dead in their tracks, and they're going to listen. Wow. They're going to be captivated by God's word. And there's some that are going to call you a freak, call the police, get him out of here, separation of church and state, he shouldn't be on the street corner. I'm sure you've dealt with that. Okay? You're either going to be loved because of God's word is, is, is captivating to their hearts, or you're going to be looked at as some type of freak. It's a polarizing message. 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Here's the reaction. Festus said with a loud voice. The Greek text indicates emphasis or explosivity. Paul, you're crazy. Are you, are you out of your mind? Now, honestly, that was a diversion. Because if they really believed that Paul was insane, remember, there's a bunch of dignitaries, there's Roman guards, there's uh, politicians, there's important people in this room. If they really thought Paul was nuts, they would have escorted him out of there because it would have been embarrassment to the audience. Okay, It would have been a great embarrassment. So this was just a repellent. It was a common response or excuse to the gospel. You're crazy, man. What's with you? In our society, uh, excuse me, let me back up for a minute. Some will laugh at you. It'll indicate ridicule. Some will shout and have a violent response. I remember I went to, a, of all things, a Christmas function with another family. 
and someone from the extended family was very hostile towards Christianity. And I started sharing the gospel. This guy rose up, and he was a really tall guy. He rose up and he started yelling at me. This is at a Christmas function, right? Now, in my mind, I wanted to sock him. But I thought that would be a bad witness, so I didn't do it. I just listened to it, and I tried to wait till he was calmed down. A soft answer turns away wrath. And I, you know, I think I got made a little bit of headway, but... You know, you, you never know where it's going to come from. It could come from your own family. It could come during a Christmas function. You know, who knows what makes people do the things that they do. But 1 Corinthians says this, To the Greek, the message of the cross is foolishness. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. Okay? And of course, the Jews were waiting for this great Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome and to, to take up arms and, and slay the last Roman soldier. So in, in their emotionalism, they didn't like the Messiah that they got. You know, they wanted something a little bit different. So it was a stumbling block to them. And to the Greek, they were always philosophizing and, and, and talking about education. And, and this was a, oh, the cross. How gauche, how, how archaic. But it's true. In our society, it's the same thing. To the highly educated, okay? The cross is absurd. It's archaic. Professors all over the country were sending our kids to these schools. Man, you better teach your kids about apologetics. You better teach them why they believe what they believe. Because they're going to run into a professor, it's going to happen, where the professor will try to demean them in the classroom. It's being exposed all over the place. Okay? Highly educated. Absurd. Archaic. To the materialistic about Jesus Christ. Gee, that means I might have to give something up. Hmm. I don't know about that. To a vain and idolatrous society, me can't be at center stage anymore. Jesus has to be in the center stage. And that's a problem. Too many excuses because a spoiled society does not want to part with any of its toys. You know, Jesus said that the way to everlasting life is a narrow road and few find it. He said, but the way to everlasting destruction is a wide road. And a lot of people find that road. And some may say, boy, that's kind of mean of God. I don't really think that's from his end. I think that's from our end. I think the reason why the road is narrow is because we have so many distractions especially in the United States. We have everything at our fingertips, right? And, you know, me, I know me. I live in a more rural area. When the power goes out, I'm on the phone right away on the cell phone with the electric company. What happened? Why is the power out? When is it going to come back on? God forbid some of my food spoils. I mean, we're, we're all guilty of the same thing. Imagine going into a store and they don't have air conditioning on a July day. I'm not staying here. I'm sweating. I might have to take a shower again, you know? <laughs> Come on, guys, let's, let's be honest. You're laughing because we all fall into this trap. So the way to everlasting life is a hard road because we don't want to part with our toys, right? Well, if the rapture, if I, I go up in a rapture, well, well, what about my possessions? Well, what about this? What, what, about, you know, what kind of clothes am I going to go? You're not going to go up there with any clothes, you know? <laughs> no wallet, no ID, no jewelry. Forget it. You know, it's it. So the bottom line is we make it difficult, you know, um, the, the thorns that grow up amongst the, the, good, the good crop. And the, Jesus said the thorns, the cares of this world, actually wrap themselves around what was growing with the word of God and they chokes it out. But we allow it to happen. And it's a slow process. It takes the nutrients from the good crop and it also chokes it out. So it's getting it from both ends. Verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For, for the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. 
Paul said to King Agrippa, listen, I know you know this stuff. This is part of your job description, King. I know that you're well-versed in the Jewish culture and the Old Testament and the, the rabbinical writings. Come on, King Agrippa, work with me here. Now, King Agrippa certainly knew at least most of what Paul was talking about. And, and you can see that from secular sources. Read about King Agrippa II. Now, this guy knew his stuff. I believe Paul was really hoping he could reach this backslidden potentate for Christ. And I believe that King Agrippa was curious... He did want to hear Paul, sort of like Herod wanted to hear John the Baptist, but he wasn't ready to repent, and he wasn't ready at this part of his life. Again, what would it cost him? You see, Jesus was very candid and honest. Jesus, he wasn't clever to try to trick people into the kingdom of heaven. He was always very upfront with people. In John, or Luke chapter 14, Jesus said to his followers, count the costs. If you follow me, there's going to be costs, and you need to count them, Right? And it's almost to me like scales. You know, you have everlasting life and you have the costs, the alienation, you know, the persecution, maybe financial issues, whatever it is on this side of the scales. But to me, it's a no-brainer. You have everlasting life, which really tips it. What can you put in this thing here that's really going to make things even? So it's, it's a no-brainer, but people need to count the cost. They need to see, what am I going to lose? What am I holding on to? What can change in my life if I follow Jesus? But Jesus was honest with them. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are almost persuading me to become a Christian. Um, I did a little research on this, and we run into this once every, I don't know, many, many, many sermons. But there's another translation that's out there that I think is a better translation. And it's more of a literal rendering. And it says, quote, in a short time, you are persuading me to become a Christian. Very similar, but little subtle nuances. And the reason is because in the beginning of the Greek sentence structure, the word is en oligo, where in the English we get the word oligarchy means uh, from. So what he's trying to focus on in the beginning is in a few moments, in a little while, or for a short time. Notwithstanding the translation, King Agrippa was not biting. He wasn't buying it. And he wasn't going to answer Paul's question either. You know, remember, Paul asked him a question. Come on, you, you believe the prophets. You know, come on, help work with me here. And, and he, he, he wasn't going there. He wasn't going to answer the question. In the end, these men will stand before the judgment seat of God because nobody can escape it. The truth is, it's better to be put on the spot now. Maybe it would have caused these guys some embarrassment. Maybe we've run into a situation where somebody's one-on-one said something to us or asked us a question. You know, where are you with the Lord? Are you saved? Whatever the case may be. But it's better to put on the, be put on the spot now than to stand before the Lord in the judgment having rejected him. Okay? Verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but all, also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. He's basically saying to them, I wish all of you could be saved. I wish you could be everything that I am, except for these chains. Now, what a, what a picture that must have been when he lifted his arms and the fetters were still attached to his wrist and the, and the chains were still hanging from him. I wish you could be just as I am, except for these chains and being imprisoned. I believe Paul really loved these people. You know, he was a political prisoner for two years. He was uh, batted back and forth by different politicians. Certainly, it would have opened the door for bitterness. But I believe that the Apostle Paul really tried his hardest to win these dignitaries over for Jesus Christ because he loved them. And that's the question for us. The question for us is, 
Is it, a, is it a cultural thing for us as Christians, or are we, here, are we here to learn about the Word of God so we can go out into that lost and dying world and love people enough to win them over for Christ? And that's the question we all have to ask each other in our hearts, because we can get caught up in a routine. You know, I can get caught up in a routine. Um, a, a pastor that I really respect came to me recently and said, uh, the Lord's been really working on me. I'm so busy with ministry that... I'm not doing a lot of one-on-one with, with strangers. And he said, the Lord has convicted me of that. So, you know, it's such a cool thing because God builds us up in his word, not for us to do nothing. You know, the 144,000 Jews in the book of Revelation that are sealed, where they won't be able to be killed, and they're sent out. He seals them for a reason. God never builds us up to do nothing with us. Okay? Well, so they rose up at the same time. And this is a gesture of, listen, if you've ever been at a meeting... Maybe a round table and there's a bunch of people at the meeting and three people, you know, who are the ones who are you're you're trying to get an audience with. They just stand up. It's kind of rude if they don't say anything to you. But you know that that means they're done with you. (laughs) It's it. The meeting is over. And that's what they did. They all stood up. The meeting's over. It's getting too hot in here. John 16, 8. They were convicted. the, The world is convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit. And that's what was going on here. So the unbeliever hears the word of God. The unbeliever is pricked in the heart by the word of God, and there's an opportunity for regeneration. Or the unbeliever can fight it, he can harden his heart, and use excuses to put up barriers to salvation. And this is common. Many have a novel curiosity for God, but they want to put him at a distance. And I'm sure you've run into this. Well, tell me about your faith, and you start telling them. Well, tell me about the historical aspects. Well, tell me about Jesus' life. And then you may ask questions back to that person. Well, tell me about you. Where are you with the Lord? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not the question I asked. They, want, they have a novel curiosity for God. I want him somewhere close to me, but I have my arms up. It's like a force field. You're in my personal space. I don't want God to get past this part in my personal space. The world is filled with people like that, and I think King Agrippa was one of those. Felix, going back to Felix, the first guy he went before, Felix was just too confused. There was too much going on to be concerned about salvation in Jesus. Festus, Festus was too high-minded to be concerned about Jesus. Agrippa, he was too politically set up to ruin it. He had a good thing going. There's no way he was going to ruin that for this resurrection salvation thing. I've heard enough. I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. Excuses. And I have to ask, what is your excuse? If you don't know the Lord, what is your excuse? Some have come to me and said, well, I have to finish, finish college first. Well, God is with you while you're going through college. Well, e- even in Jesus' day, uh, he, he got excuses too. He spoke about that parable. Well, I've just bought a team of oxen. I can't come to the, the king's great dinner and a picture of you know, a reception of salvation and, and you know, what God has to offer. Because I just bought a team of oxen and I have to test them first. Another said, I, I just got married and I need some alone time with my wife. I can't come to the king. You know, and today it's the same thing. We all have some type of excuse. Well, I need to retire work uh, first. Well, I'm working two jobs. Well, there's a problem in the marriage. Well, if there's a problem in the marriage, certainly putting the Lord in the center of that marriage will help that situation out. But as human beings, we make excuses, and I did it too. For many years, I made excuses when people would talk to me. And I kept, I was interested in hearing God, but I didn't want him to get past this point. So what is your excuse? Because God can help you with anything that you're involved in. Verse 31. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing, uh, this man is doing nothing worthy of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Verse 31. 
You know, they actually have a, maybe a fondness for Paul. Maybe they feel sorry for him. Gee, this guy's just talking about God, and now he's in this position where we've got to send him to Nero. What a shame. How tragic. Uh, maybe they talked fondly about him to assuage their guilt. Maybe they thought that if they were kind to Paul, that God eventually in the end would, would show them some grace and give them you know, a favor. Just like the unbeliever who makes a donation to charity but, and makes them feel better, but they don't want that relationship with God. I have a, another pastor friend who I really respect, and uh, he had a guy who, again, same thing. Well, I, I can listen to a little bit, but you know, I'm not ready for anything. But he would make a donation to the church every month. And my pastor friend said to him, he sat him down and he said, listen, I can't go any further with this until I explain something to you. If you think you're going to buy your way into heaven, you're sadly mistaken. Now, I respect that man because on that, on that moment, the guy could have said, fine, I'm not sending you a check anymore. But he loved him enough. You see, you see what love is? We think love is flowery, buy me this, buy me that, do this for me, do that. No, this is true love. He loved that man enough to say to him, listen, you can't buy your way into heaven. I'd rather you keep your money to yourself and, and really see what it means to find out who God is than to have a pretense set up. Uh, you can't do that. That's true love. Telling people the truth. Salvation is a one-on-one -on -one with us and God. Nothing more, nothing less. There's nothing that we can do outside of a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God through Jesus as the Messiah, as, as our, our Savior, that's going to get us into heaven. There's no end running God. There's no flanking the gates. There's no coming in through the helicopter. There's one way in. Okay? And that's the way that God had set this up. In closing, I want to leave you with this. John 3.16. Most people have memorized it. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? But that's not the end of the story. The last few verses, which you know, people kind of forget about, they gloss over, really, really makes the point here with these men. Verse 17, let me break it down. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And, you know, there are groups, um, you know, it's good to preach fire and brimstone, but if, as Christians, if we're always telling people they're going to hell... That's not, that's not the whole message. Some Christians are guilty of just painting a pretty picture, and some are guilty of just telling everybody they're going to hell, which uh, nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. Did I say you're going to hell too? <laughs> but, you know, God sent his son not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and the men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And that's what was going on with these leaders. They were in the darkness. They were self-centered. They were doing things that pleased them. Some of them were corrupt. Some of them were wicked. Some of them were plotting against each other. They were evil. They were doing deeds in the darkness. And they didn't want to come to the light. And see, that's the thing about Jesus. It's a weird thing where... He, he, when Jesus comes down, he, it's like a magnet. He automatically, some are going to go towards him and some are going to go away, and it's automatically going to put us in two categories. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn us, but by virtue of him coming into the world, you have to fall in one or two camps. That's it. So the condemnation comes when we reject the light. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his, his deeds may be clearly seen, 
that they have been done in God. So from God's perspective, it's a rhetorical question. Who really had the authority? Paul was in chains. Paul was a prisoner. Where's Paul now? These kings had had authority. With the snap of a finger, they could have had his head taken off. Where are they now? So who really had the authority and who really was on trial here? Let's pray.